Stephen, thank you. <laughs> you didn't know that Stephen was a professional name reader. Uh, yes. Uh, let's pray. Father, uh, we thank you uh, for this morning. We thank you uh, for your word, uh, every part of it. Uh, and we thank you that we um, can hear from you and be led by you because you have revealed to us the word. What I pray for us as we walk through this today, that we might hear you, that we might know how you are leading us, and that our hearts might be, um, as we have sung, more tender to you um, in every way. Would you take just a moment uh, to ask the Lord to speak to you from his word today? Lord, thank you for your faithfulness to speak. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, welcome. It is great to be together and great to worship the Lord together. And um, Kyle, thank you for uh, honoring um, our seniors and our one senior who is here today. And um, I do want to welcome you. If you're visiting with us, we'd love to know you're here. Uh, there's that little card um, in front. And was, if you wouldn't mind filling that out, as well as the prayer request in the back. And you can put that in this, these boxes as we can uh, come alongside and help you get connected. Also pray for you and with you. Uh, this week, um, uh, probably the person who has had the most influence on me in the last 25 years, um, Tim Keller, as a church planner, pastor, and an author, uh, passed away um, prematurely. And um, it, it's been a sad week, I think, for many who've been influenced by him. Uh, for me, not only did he influence me in, uh, in ministry, church planting, um, gospel ministry in the city, but I think more profoundly in the realm in which the depths of the gospel uh, as we just sang, that our, our desperate need for Jesus. Uh, in the many, many ways that we try to earn it or try to work for it or, or pay it forward or make a penance, but just this recognition that it is a, a gift that our sinless Savior died, as we sang, so that our hearts might be counted free. Uh, and I'm thankful for him. And I think it's right and good to honor those who have influenced us those who have uh, served with us, who have co-labored, uh, it's good to honor them. Now, I actually never met Tim Keller. I, I've told this story before, but I, read an I rode an elevator with him once. Um, and I rode, it was a short elevator. Uh, we were only going two floors. And I remember thinking, I don't know what to do with this. Because this is, like, he's had the most influence over me in the last 25 years. I don't know, and there's only three of us or four of us in the, in the and so I just been like, I don't know what to say. What question do you ask him? You know, what can I say? And, and so finally, I just keep stressing out. We get to the top and it, and as right as the door is about to open, I just go, thank you. Like this, like, he was like, did you say something? You know, he was like, you're welcome. And then he gets off and people ask him profound questions and thank him, you know, rightfully as he walks out. Uh, but it's right and good to honor those who have had influence on us, probably more than just saying thank you, but to honor them. And, and what's interesting is I never, again, never met Tim Keller. We were not up and close, but yet why did we read this passage? Why would we read this passage that so often we just, I mean, we just glaze over? All these names, we don't know how to pronounce them. I don't know how to say them. I don't know who these people are. And we just sort of glaze. Why would we read this? Because Paul, at the end of this book of Romans, he's wanting to honor those who have served with him, those who have influenced him, and those who have been co-laborers in the gospel. And it is good to do that. And though we're tempted to glaze over that passage, I, I think it's important for us to see the family of God in this. You, you see this beautiful picture of what it looks like to be the family 
uh, brothers and, and sisters and mothers and fathers. My, it's one of my favorites is when he says, and greet Rufus and his mom, right? <laughs> she was like a mom to me. It, it's just so, it's so human. So real. This is like the family of God, the church, the community of God, all these names that we don't know, but Paul did know up close and personal, which is why he mentions them because of their ministry to him and with him. And he starts by greeting Phoebe. So just so we know, Phoebe is actually likely the, the one who brought the letter. I mean, she is the emissary. She is the one who brought the letter of, uh, the, what, as we now know, is the book of Romans to the Roman church. And it says that she was a, a deacon or a servant. The, the, those words are the same word, but likely was a deacon, a representative from the, the church at Centre. And she was not only his sister, but she was also one who had been a patron, like we talked about last week, who had generously given to the work of the ministry and was probably helping to fund the ministry that Paul was taking as he was hoping to go to Spain. And so he says, greet Phoebe as she's coming. It's potential that Phoebe was the one reading Romans as they were listening to it as a church. And he goes on to greet others. He says, greet Priscilla and Aquila. We actually know a lot about them from other books of the Bible where they were just so faithful. They were leading house churches. They were teaching the gospel. They were sharing the good news of Jesus and teaching those as, they, as people were coming to faith in the early days of the gospel. And he says here that they risked everything for him and for the sake of the gospel. He goes on, he mentions another couple, Andronicus and Junia, who have been believers before Paul probably very early, right as soon after Jesus' crucifixion, they came to faith in Christ. And there's some debate on this because the, the phrase says that they are outstanding among the apostles. And so like, were Andronicus and Junia apostles? Uh, there's debate about this, but I think even kind of no matter what we come on that, the idea is that these are people who have been sent by God. This, the New Testament gives examples of a, a broader group of apostles who were sent by the Lord to, to minister and to serve and to lead other people in faith in Christ, these people were, were stalwarts of the faith. They were the people that Paul wants to honor because they've been imprisoned with him. They've risked for him. They've served with him. They've worked hard almost over and over again. He says they worked hard for the gospel. They engaged in it. And so there's 26 other people that Paul greets in this book. It's the most of any book in the Bible of, of, the, of the letters. And again, you can't read this without just seeing Paul's heart for people. In one of the most doctrinally sound books of the scriptures, I love that he ends with people. Real names, real faces that he knew. They supported each other. They loved each other. They walked alongside each other. They were mothers and fathers, spiritual mothers and fathers, spiritual brothers and sisters. That is this picture of the family of God. It's a great display of the gifts of these people being to serve the church um, in Rome at that time. And what's interesting is uh, Priscilla and and Aquila are the only ones we really know anything else about from the scriptures. So this list of 20 some odd people, it's, they are profound partners that he would mention. They're sisters, they're brothers, they're mothers and fathers, but we don't know anything else about them. And, And I love that because the church is not made up of celebrities. It's a family. It's a community of people who go together and and serve together. And much of this letter, especially the back half of the letter, has been about the unity that God's people are to work for. That this unity of what Christ has done for us by his blood, as we sang, what he has created in us is a new community. And that unity is meant to be fought for. And that's what Paul is talking about. So he's commending all these people who have done that. And then he gives a warning. 
As we continue reading, uh, Stephen will be like, why didn't you give me this to read? Um, Verse 17, he says, I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them. For such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. And by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. For your obedience is known to all, so that I rejoice over you. But I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. And so we have all these people who he commends for their faithfulness. Then he gives a warning, and the warning is about people. The warning is there are, will be people who will cause divisions. They will build obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you've been taught. They will tear apart the community that Christ has died for. And it's like wolves in sheep's clothing. They're coming with flattery and with smooth talk. Flattery is actually the word for blessing, but it's a false blessing. It's a blessing on false pretense. And so they're using this smooth talk and this flattery to try to say, hey, let me get in and deceive you and cause division. He says, watch out. Just watch out for these people. It commends these people, but watch out for these people who, who want to create division in the church. And there's two kinds of people. There's two people that he warns, um, and it's, they're kind of one kind of person, but the first one is divisive people. It's divisive people. He says, be careful. In fact, he says, avoid them. Uh, don't give them a platform. Don't give them something to stand on. And, and if you think about these two warnings, in some ways, as a summary of the book of Romans, We've been in the book of Romans for nine months, y'all. Way to go. You've almost made it. Uh, but so as we've been in this book for a long time, if we think about the summary of Romans 12 through 16, it has been about unity. I mean, there's lots of ways you could summarize this, but if you think about the unity that we have in Christ, he says, look, I, I, in Romans 13, he says, I don't want you to divide as the people of God. Don't divide over governing authorities. Pay your taxes and submit to the government. And he's like, because we have a greater citizenship. We have a king who is in heaven. In 14 and 15, he talks about all those, uh, as we talked a lot about these last few weeks, the ceremony and the sort of the gray areas where people might have convictions. He says, don't divide over those things. Work together. Serve your brother and sister in that and care for that. This idea of unity is so significant in Romans 12 through 16. In many ways, it is the theme of those, of those books, those chapters. And so he's helping them see. He says, I, I want you to, to work hard at unity. He says, so be careful for those who are going to be divisive. In fact, we've read this a few times, but in Romans 12, he talks about this kind of community. He says, let love be genuine. Abhor or hate what is evil. Cling, hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. He goes on to say, rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. This is the picture of what the church is supposed to look like. And when we don't live in harmony with one another, we repent and we seek to reconcile. The ministry of reconciliation is in us through the gospel. So we live in harmony with one another. We work towards unity. But notice it's not a false unity. We live in a time where there's kind of a lot of talk about, you know, unity. It's just like, hey, unity for unity's sake. Look, we just agree. Let's all just agree. Even though we disagree, let's agree. That kind of idea. But he doesn't say that. Because the second warning he gives, not only is divisive people, but the second warning is false doctrine. And this is what he says. They create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you've been taught. He said in verse 19, for your obedience is known to all so that I rejoice over you. But I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. Remember what we read earlier? Let love be genuine. 
Hate what is evil, love, hold fast to what is good. Similar here, be wise to what's good and innocent to what is evil. He's clearly telling them, he's like, be on the lookout. For people who want to cause division, and primarily they want to cause division because they want to stir up uh, false doctrine. They want the church to be unified, but not unified on something higher than themselves. And so this is what Paul's saying. He's, I don't want you to be led astray by the doctrine of the gospel, or by, by false doctrine. I don't want you to be led astray by that. It's like, I want you to follow it and to know it, to know it in such a way, that to know it so well, you say, I can spot a counterfeit from a mile away. On the first uh, Sunday that we talked through Romans, I remember talking through, why are we studying this book? And I use this illustration, I've used it a lot, you've heard it many times probably, but the idea of someone who's trying to um, uh, study counterfeit dollars, because people are trying to make counterfeit $100 bills, and so they try to do it lots of different ways to try to get that by, but the people who study this, they don't study the, all the different counterfeits that are out there, they could, to try to understand, oh, I know that counterfeit, that's this kind. No, they study the original, and they know the original so well. They know every depth and every, every, and every little pencil mark, every little thing on it so well that they can spot a counterfeit as soon as they see it. That's the idea here. To know, to keep an eye out, to watch for this when these doctrinal things are, are counterfeit. To have that so closely, to know the gospel so well. And what we said when we began Romans is that part of the reason we walked through this is because we live in a time where, where there's just so much tossing to and fro and it's, it's, is there truth? It's your truth. It's my truth. It's all the, it's just, we want to come back to Romans and say, what is the truth of the gospel? Let's walk through this. Let's linger here for a long time so that we can be ingrained in the gospel so that we can know what is the truth so that we can then for a spot those who might want to tear it apart. Paul seems to think that it's important that we know the truth so we can be on the lookout for those who want to deceive and teach false doctrine. And so uh, if the the last chapters of Romans, 12 through 16, is all about unity, 1 through 11 is really all about doctrine. It's really about what is the doctrine of the gospel? What is it about? And in some ways, these two warnings, as we, you know, kind of coming near to the end of the book of Romans, these two warnings are in some ways a warning about what this book has been about. To fight for unity, warning against divisive people, uh, 12 through 16, but also to, to make sure that we have, are aware of what is the false doctrines that are out there and what is happening, what could potentially come in through flattery or smooth talk into the church context that we might miss it, we, that we care about doctrine. So these two warnings in some ways summarize the book for us as we are coming near to the end. And so I want, us, I want to remind us, it's not something we typically do, but I want us to remind us of what Romans is about. 12 through 16 about the unity as we live that out. But then 1 through 11 on the, on the unity that we have around the truth of the gospel. Why do that? So that we can be vigilant to hold fast to the truth of the gospel. And so I want to remember how Paul starts this letter all the way back in, in Romans 1. The theme of this entire uh, book, Romans 1 verse 16 Uh, In 17, Paul says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. So you have this right from the get go that the gospel of Jesus is the power of God for all those who believe. 
It's the power of God for salvation for all those who believe. And so that's what it's about. This is about the gospel of God. But he continues to bring up this theme of righteousness. And so one commentator actually summarizes the book of Romans like this. And I'll, we'll put it on the screen here. Thanks, Brian. Uh, is the first couple chapters, 118 through 320, is about righteousness needed. 321 through, uh, through 5, chapter 5, is righteousness imputed. Uh, 6 through 8, righteousness imparted. 9 through 11, righteousness vindicated because of his sovereignty. And 12 through 16, righteousness practiced. And so I say all this to say that when we come back to what Romans was about, it starts with this recognition that we need his righteousness. We are unrighteous. Remember those first couple chapters? We were just swimming in sin. It was just like, what is sin? And it just keeps going. The spirals down and spirals down as we recognize that no matter who we are, if we're religious, if we're non-religious, if we're, if we're Jewish, if we're Gentile, if we've kept all the rules, if we don't keep all the rules, no matter where we've been, every single one of us is unrighteous. In fact, he culminates with this phrase where he says, no one seeks God, not even one. No one is righteous, not even one. This desperate need we have for us to have a relationship with the righteous God and that we who are unrighteous means that we are under the judgment of God because of that. But God did something so fascinating that he imputed, he he did something we can never think of. He imputed his righteousness upon us through the life and the death and the the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We, We read this in Romans 3, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Sin must be judged, but he has come up with a way for sin to be atoned for, the death of Jesus. In fact, Tim Keller, who I mentioned earlier, he's um, known for saying that, uh, that this is the gospel. He says that we are more sin and more, sin, uh, more sinful and flawed than we ever could have imagined. And yet, because of the truth of the gospel, that we are more loved and accepted in Jesus than we ever dared to hope. This reality of what is true here in Romans is that we so desperately needed a savior and God has made a way by making Jesus both just and the justifier. He's the one who died in our place so that it is imputed upon us. That word is important. It's not something we earned. It's not something we, uh, we, uh, we can pay for. It was imputed, it's imparted, it's just, I mean, not imparted, imputed and put on us his righteousness. That he who knew no sin became uh, sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. And so this is that first part. And then he goes on to say that that righteousness is imparted in Romans 6 through 8. This is the, the fact that God is conforming us more and more to the image of, of Christ, That as we grow, because we are no longer slaves to sin, we are slaves to righteousness. We are slaves to Christ. We have a new master. That means everything changes. And so that righteousness that has been imputed is now being imparted and we're beginning to grow and learn in it. It's a hard process. We call it sanctification, but we're learning in it and we're beginning to grow and look more and more like Christ. The middle school, as you probably know, that middle school and high school, they, they do the same passage uh, that we do here. And the middle school, every week, they have a statement that they say um, to summarize Romans. They say, all are unrighteous before God, one through three. Well, we are made righteous through faith in Jesus Christ, four through five. So we should walk in new life led by the Spirit. They say that every week. It's pretty good. As we understand this truth of the gospel. And then we come to Romans 9 through 11. 
that righteousness is needed. Righteousness is imputed because of Christ. Righteousness is imparted because of, of this process that God is doing in us if we believe in Jesus. In 9 through 11, he talks about the sovereignty of God over salvation history. Nothing is a surprise to God. He has planned to bring salvation about in this way. And, and this highlights again the fact that we cannot choose God. Nobody seeks God. Nobody chooses God. Nobody is righteous. And so therefore, he chooses us. And God is in complete control of all things. His righteousness is displayed in salvation. His eternal plan of salvation shows that it's clearly not from us. It's clearly not earned, which actually means it's utterly secure. It's based on his righteousness. And his righteousness is vindicated because he is the one who's sovereign over all things. And then Romans 12 through 16 is righteousness practiced. In a diverse community of people coming from every background, we live this out. We're unified around the truth of the gospel and we seek to live this out as a community. And so that's one way to summarize the book of Romans. Uh, for us to understand this truth that Paul wants us to be so vigilant about and hold fast to. Chapter 16, verse 20, he says this. He says, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Yes, this is true at the end of the age and we know that from the scriptures but I think in light of this context, I think Paul is also trying to help us see who is behind this deception. Who's behind the division? Who's behind the deception? Who's behind the false gospel? Who's behind the false doctrine? It's the enemy. It's Satan. He's always lying. He's always tempting and he's always accusing. That's what he does. And, and I think Paul brings this up here in a minute, I mean, here in this passage, both to show us the end but also to show us where does this come from and how can we have eyes to see it and recognize that the God of peace will crush this. The God who has made us one, he will crush this and he will crush him. And so the warning at the end of this book is basically to watch out for people who try to deceive us from what this book has been about. Romans 1 through 11 about the doctrine of the gospel. And 12 through 16, about the unity that we have in Christ, unified around the truth of the gospel. Unity in doctrine. I appreciate both warnings, and I think we need both. Because I think uh, it forces us as a church to live in the tension between truth and grace. To live in the tension uh, between all of these names of people that we don't know, yet the names and faces of people that Paul does know and the tension of, and the truth of the gospel, the truth of, of what's true doctrinally. And if Paul had not warned about unity, perhaps the church would just miss people, not care about people for just non-essential doctrine issues and just being the doctrine police, always kind of going around trying to figure it out. But if he had not warned about doctrine, perhaps the church would just be like, oh, we'll be, uni we'll be unified for unity's sake. We just, we'll just call it unity. And we'll be unified with no higher standard that we're unified around. We need both. We need Paul's warning for both. My hope for us over the last, these last nine months as we've been walking through this book of the Bible, week in and week out, is that we would be vigilant about both. Vigilant about the gospel, about the doctrine of what is true from the scriptures. The essentials of our faith, they, they matter and they're important to us. And we would also be vigilant about unity the names and the faces of the people in which we are called to be a part of a community together. 
We know these names. We know these faces here. That we're called to live in unity and to pursue that unity around the truth of the gospel. And so that's my prayer for us as we have studied Romans. That our hearts would be vigilant about both. Knowing the truth of the gospel and fighting for the unity of what Christ has done for us and in us. Let's pray. Father, as we uh, come to you this morning, we uh, recognize that you've made us a community. A community of names and faces that we know. And you've made us ones who are to fight for unity. And to fight for that unity around the truth of the gospel. And so, Lord, we take this moment to repent for maybe the ways we have one way or the other where we've maybe let a false doctrine or a false gospel seep in for unity's sake and we repent for the ways in which we have not fought for unity not fought for the grace and the love that your word speaks so much about as we've seen in Romans let love be genuine hate what is evil and hold fast to what is good. May that be our hearts today as we um, ponder what you are doing in us and through us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.